This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Tobias Hollera from UCSB's Computer Science Department. Thank you for having me here today. I'd like to talk to you about the world as computer interface. How will humans stay in control? In computer science, my discipline is a, an exciting, challenging, and accelerating field that impacts the world every day uh, in countless ways. Computer scientists are involved in creating technology systems that are useful in a wide range of industries, including medicine, communications, manufacturing, entertainment, business, and last but not least, science. Computer science leads to new technologies that can change the world, such as the personal computer, the internet, cell phones, social media, much, much more. Also, new discoveries in science and engineering, new possibilities for social science and the humanities, and creative collaborations with the arts. But since the early days of computer science, there has always been the warning and danger computers will take over, take our jobs, replace us as humans. And so what I would like to argue today and make a um, brief uh, overview for is uh, the question of how humans can stay in control. And uh, one way uh, that I really believe in is, uh, but that's pretty much true for every field, is uh, that we need to entice the young creative minds that are interested in these technologies to really do the right things uh, um, for the field in the future. I think we also need to uh, um, take a step back and see what do we expect from technology and how can we achieve it. My own area is uh, um, human-computer interaction uh, as a subfield of computer science, so how we use computers, how we solve problems with computers. I run uh, a lab called the Four Eyes Laboratory, uh, where the four eyes stand for the four eyes in imaging, interaction, and innovative interfaces, but also for the goggles that we have to wear for still for um, our work in virtual and augmented reality, which is one of the areas that the lab is interested in. The lab was founded with uh, um, Professor Matthew Turk in the early 2000s, and now we have a, a range of uh, uh, great faculty in the area of visual computing um, that uh, are affiliated with the lab. So we uh, um, cover a wide range of technologies in the lab, all kind of uh, geared towards what human-computer interaction is the future of uh, using computers. And uh, in order to do this, let's look uh, uh, at the last two success stories in technology adoption. So each of uh, um, these uh, paradigms was really successful in terms of uh, uh, user adoption. I'm personally a, uh, a kid of the personal computing era where computers actually made it into households for the first time. Then we had the World Wide Web uh, in the mid-90s forward and uh, social computing from 2000 on, cloud computing from about 2006 on, and the mobile revolution from about 2007 onwards uh, which was when the first iPhone came out. And uh, um, so you may ask, uh, what is next on this? Because 2007 is already uh, 13 years away. And um, uh, basically, as, a, uh, uh, as my take on it, um, I think there could be an era of reality computing where 
instead of carrying your smartphone around, you actually have a personal mobile wearable computer that uh, overlays computer graphics or uh, computer information on top of the physical world um, via augmented reality, which is one of the research areas that my lab is interested in. But um, really, for the uh, sake of this talk, it is secondary what this technology is that would come next as a paradigm. I happen to believe uh, and work towards uh, this particular technology, mobile augmented reality, uh, but others are possible. And uh, you see that uh, there is a lot of lip service for augmented reality at the moment. Uh, um, for example, uh, Tim Cook, uh, uh, Apple CEO, sees AR as really profound. It's a, he says it's going to change everything. Uh, AR has the ability to amplify human performance instead of isolating humans. So he is a huge, huge believer in AR. They put a lot of energy on AR. They're moving very fast. He said that in, in an interview. And you see that pretty much all the big tech players uh, um, are investing heavily in this technology. And I just want to show you, just to highlight a few possible application areas. So one is uh, the um, uh, industrial or commercial application uh, possibility. So, for example, for maintenance, planning, and remote communication. Uh, a PhD student of mine, Stefan Gauklitz, together with Professor Matthew Turk, uh, actually kicked off a startup company, Cognate, a few years back, and they uh, uh, got to the technology for remote AR maintenance annotations uh, uh, to productization within two years. Um, these are examples from uh, current uh, exciting startup companies such as Spatial here, for example. And uh, in education, which is obviously dear to my heart uh, as a professor here, um, there's lots of uh, application possibilities. The technology is not quite there yet. Uh, for full deployment in everyday classwork. But you have uh, things like um, being able to actually see constellations in the uh, uh, nighttime sky directly overlaid in your vision. Uh, one really good way to uh, learn about astronomy or the, uh, the stars, constellations. And um, you have lots of other uh, um, uh, opportunities like that. Uh, in telemedicine, really important topic right now, uh, augmented reality can help a lot. Uh, and then it already has created a, a followership for social media and communication. And if you look at this uh, um, uh, example here at the bottom, which is actually from a, a 5G commercial uh, from Deutsche Telekom, um, it can be used for communication, for translation purposes. And uh, because that case didn't actually showcase uh, uh, augmented reality, you can use the, uh, um, the camera of a, a mobile device to actually overlay and change written uh, signs and uh, materials very easily with augmented reality uh, as well. And uh, I will come back to this application area uh, later in this talk. I just want to show you a few um, examples that just show what I mean by augmented reality. Uh, so here's my student, Yun Sok Chang, a few years back, and he's drawing annotations on top of a, a printer. And this is filmed by a second uh, head-worn display. He's wearing a Microsoft HoloLens. And uh, you see how this device, uh, which is a uh, um, completely self-sufficient um, uh, wearable computer, can overlay and even inter allow interaction with uh, uh, computer graphics 
that you uh, use to annotate the physical world. And you can do that even from a distance. Here's an application, a follow-up work that we did where we uh, uh, kind of drew arrows to uh, physical objects in a wider environment. And uh, um, if you walk up to these boxes that I annotate here from uh, uh, a distance, you will see that these uh, arrows point directly to the box I wanted to annotate. So in this case, a uh, um, maintenance worker or a security worker could actually highlight uh, things that have to be checked in a large um, factory hall uh, and then could check it off uh, so that uh, their colleagues um, would not uh, need to go to that particular spot again. And uh, this also works outdoors. Here's a, a demonstration where we have two HoloLenses actually collaborate together in siding down, uh, getting uh, basically a, a adequate model of uh, a particular point, in this case the, uh, um, uh, the lamp that you see there in the background, and through triangulation you can actually pinpoint with an interactive interface where that is. So just a few examples. Um, I want to say that uh, with, in spite of all these possibilities, uh, there is a danger that technology can take over. So take the um, case of us relying on maps very heavily, on smartphones. Um, I think we all love being able to navigate in uh, um, unknown environments, but over-reliance on mapping software can actually make us lose spatial skills. That has been shown. And uh, so I'm interested in the question, could some smart technology maybe make us better at spatial reasoning while they give us these um, uh, prosthesis uh, uh, um, help? And uh, as, other ex as another example, artificial intelligence today already makes lots of decisions for us, like uh, in some cases even hiring decisions for companies, firing decisions, legal decisions. And there's clearly dangers of uh, algorithmic biases, of nuances of human context being lost. And here my take would be AI could inform and improve human understanding and decision-making, but the human could actually stay in control. And here I'm coming back to the uh, uh, translation example. Uh, translation services are great. They can help us communicate. So there's already technology that uh, allows us to have live um, translation of uh, uh, two people speaking in two different languages while they speak. But now think about it. Blind reliance on some of these technologies will actually prevent us from ever learning the language itself. So again, I'm interested in the question, can the technology actually help us learn the language, maybe while starting with translation while you don't know it yet? So it would make us better as a human because we are keeping skills or we're learning skills that are still there even when the technology recedes and is not available anymore. And so this is a uh, um, particular project that goes that route. This is uh, with my PhD student, Brandon Wynn and others. And uh, so the application example is basically one of uh, vocabulary learning in your natural environment, in your home. So some people actually, without technology, would put up post-it notes uh, onto objects uh, and then uh, label them with the foreign language that they want to learn. And then when they look at them, they actually get a reminder of what that uh, world, what that object uh, uh, is called in the foreign language. And uh, so this fosters active foreign language vocabulary learning. And you can do that 
very nicely with uh, augmented reality because you don't have to clutter the physical environment. You can overlay it directly uh, via your augmented reality headset. And uh, um, you can also now uh, personalize it. So maybe the system can even um, uh, predict or know by the way you're looking at an object if you already know the word in the foreign language or not. So we did a first uh, study um, to gauge the... Uh, 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 the possibilities of such an approach. And uh, so we basically had um, learning of uh, uh, vocabulary in the Basque language, a language that nobody uh, in our user group here at UCSB knew uh, before um, uh, we went through this exercise and uh, uh, showed it in augmented reality associated with physical objects compared to a fl normal flashcard app, uh, a common way to learn vocabulary. And we saw 7% improvement on same-day tests uh, for the memorization of these words. And what is even more promising, uh, uh, four days after this, inviting the same people back, they would have a 21% improvement on the delayed test, uh, so remembering uh, the words better in the AR case. And so uh, to take this further, we built, uh, built a, uh, a system um, that goes towards uh, automating this process. Uh, so we would need to recognize objects in real life, in real time. And uh, in order to be able to tell if a person knows uh, this word or not, we would use eye tracking and maybe EEG equipment that is uh, um, like brain uh, blood flow measurements. So here is a, an early example. This, is, this was actually an undergraduate project uh, by J.B. Lanier uh, in 2017, where uh, he took uh, a convolutional neural network that would recognize objects. Uh, it's called YOLO, you only look once. And uh, it coupled it with the HoloLens. So now the HoloLens seeing uh, a normal physical environment would get its... Uh, views sent over to a machine learning server. There you have uh, the identification of the objects, gets sent back to the whole lens, and you see object recognition in your live view. Sometimes it goes wrong, as you saw before, uh, um, the uh, chair was not exactly co categorized correctly, but you get the idea, it works pretty well. But this does it only on a 2D basis, frame by frame. Uh, and we want to have 3D understanding of the physical world. So uh, uh, with my students and colleagues, uh, that was the next step, to actually aggregate these 2D observations into 3D object detection that annotates the physical world. So now we can have some objects, uh, most objects, recognized uh, in real time. And we can use that now for the augmented reality language learning application and while we're working on that, we're also experimenting with how, if you have such an always-on augmented reality device, would you switch back and forth between different applications? So that is what uh, this particular continuation of that project is concerned with. Okay, so, so this project uh, used a little bit of machine learning, and so I want to talk a little bit about um, the potential and dangers of machine learning. I am not a researcher in machine learning, and I will uh, only um, recap uh, some of the uh, uh, results in this field uh, um, from my perspective as a human-computer interaction uh, researcher. So there's a lot of high-profile 
really well working examples uh, and applications of machine learning. If you haven't seen it, uh, you can go to uh, web pages such as uh, This Person Does Not Exist to get a lifelike rendering of uh, a person that is not a photograph but uh, assembled from lots and tons and tons of other observations and photos of human, uh, uh, human beings. And uh, we all know uh, uh, the success story of uh, uh, AlphaGo, first time that uh, uh, the best player in the world in Go was actually beaten by a uh, computer. Chess happened in the late 1990s. Um, and we have the example of automated driving, uh, self-driving cars, which use a lot of different technologies in the area of machine learning, um, RNNs, CNNs, uh, reinforcement learning, and others. Um, but we don't really understand it. And so here I'm uh, um, recapping results that uh, um, came from the, uh, the field of uh, adversarial machine learning. Goodfellow uh, and colleagues uh, in 2015 showed this really compelling example that if you know the machine learning algorithm and you perturb the results or the input to your uh, algorithm just a tiny bit. So you take this picture of a panda and uh, uh, with the algorithm, it gets recognized as a panda successfully uh, at about 58% confidence. And you perturb it just a tiny bit. So what happens here is the, the least possible representable um, uh, unit gets added onto this input image so that to humanize it looks exactly the same. 0 0.007 times this noise image got added onto this. And this was specially crafted knowing the algorithm. And suddenly the, uh, um, the panda is recognized to 99.3% confidence as a gibbon. So for your reference, these are gibbons. And while they are also fuzzy, they look quite a bit different than pandas. And the thing that got added on, the noise pattern, uh, got classified as this. Nematodes was probably just the closest thing to noise in the, um, uh, in the set of images used for training. And this shows us it's really not clear what exactly was learned uh, because we could shift what the uh, algorithm says an image is uh, by uh, some kind of addition that is even invisible to human eyes. And that's very dangerous because now you could hack real life systems if you just know what was used to train them. So I called and colleagues uh, in 2018 followed up on this work, work and uh, they did these additions to um, street signs and uh, they actually were very successful in fooling the algorithm to believe that uh, um, uh, the sign was something else. For example, a stop sign recognized was recognized as a 45 miles per hour speed limit sign. And a right turn sign was actually turned into a stop sign. So this can be really, really dangerous. And they, with just a few stickers or additions uh, in simulation, they got to 100% wrong classification. So it's very uh, um, scary, actually. So you could just say, fine, machine learning algorithms are not perfect. They will get better over time. What's the big deal? But as long as an attacker knows or can reverse engineer the learning algorithm in use, they can now successfully sabotage it. So as long as we don't fully understand why some machine learning works, we can't shield against it. So also in some other areas, our trust in automation 
often goes too far, as you can see here. So what a missed opportunity that is, right? This is great technology. The technology to actually drive a car autonomously seems to work fine. So nothing happened in this case. But it is still very early in this uh, um, uh, development of these technologies. And we just saw how easily uh, such algorithms can be fooled. So what happened here is that this technology was talked up publicly as automated driving while it was internally or uh, in the manual uh, just categorized as adaptive cruise control plus some better features. And so the irony and the sad thing about this is that this exact same great technology, if it were just differently rolled out, could, have been, could be in use now for improving people's driving instead of endangering other people with reckless driving because you could use the same technology to actually tell you if you're doing something wrong as a driver or drive more carefully or drive more uh, um, uh, defensively. So uh, it could be used for bettering the human performance. So we are very interested in this topic uh, uh, and so keeping humans in control but being informed by the technology seems the right path, right? My student, James Schaefer, did a whole dissertation on this topic, and we looked at uh, um, how people actually take advice from artificial intelligence um, in more detail. So, question is, do people take advice from machines? And so, in order to test this, we uh, uh, crafted a range of scenarios. One of them was this uh, um, online trust game, uh, the diner's dilemma, which is uh, basically, for those of you who know it, a um, um, n-person, multiple-person prisoner's dilemma. Uh, so the scenario is that multiple diners eat out and agree to split the bill beforehand, and they know that they will actually meet together multiple times in the future. And now they have uh, a decision to make between, we simplified it, a cheap um, but very, um, like, an item with good cost uh, uh, quality ratio, and one expensive item that uh, uh, is a little bit less optimal in terms of cost uh, quality ratio. So when eating alone, the best choice would be hot dog in this case. Um, if you eat with others and they decide to choose hot dog because you're uh, uh, splitting the bill, you might get better value by choosing the lobster, by getting subsidized by your friends. However, you will dine out with this group an indeterminate number of times, so you should not lose trust. In the end game, it is best for everyone to converge on a hot dog meal, though it's a little unrealistic, um, but uh, um, everyone ordering lobster would lead to uh, the worst case scenario for everyone. And so we had an um, agent in here to give you advice of what you should do based on um, historic uh, decisions. And we varied uh, some variables like explanation and automation and uh, figured out um, if people actually would uh, go by the advice of the artificial intelligence recommender system or not. So lessons learned from this work is just because people say they trust say they trust the AI doesn't mean they actually follow the artificial intelligence advice. So persuasion is very critical. 
And it's also the case, which is very well known in psychology, uh, of human overconfidence. So if you don't know much about uh, a particular area, then you may not know enough that you then you may not know enough to say that you don't know the material, right? So you're not expert enough to gauge how much you actually know. So uh, um, only when your competence rises and when you become actually a, a very expert, you suddenly realize how much you really know. And only the true experts can say of themselves that they have high confidence of their expertise. So as a danger in showing uh, uh, explanations to self-confident users, we found in that uh, their situation awareness might be negatively impacted. And so appealing to emotion uh, may be the only avenue to accommodate the overconfident and change their minds and make, let them make the right uh, uh, decisions. Okay, so uh, um, as conclusion... Uh, as a big picture of uh, what I would like you to take from this talk, um, in order to figure out how humans stay in control, we need to understand uh, um, technology uh, very well. So we need to come from a very informed position um, because we, uh, the people who actually design the technology, the people who understand the technology, are also the safe keepers of technology and uh, uh, need to make sure that it is uh, usable for the rest of humanity. At the same time, we need to also uh, um, understand humans very well because we need to understand ourselves. We need to understand uh, how people actually will uh, be able to interact with new technologies. Will they take advice from these technologies? Um, will they learn new human capabilities from it? And this needs to be taken, this knowledge, right? Knowledge about technology and knowledge about humans uh, and combined with the goal of improving humanity, not just building technology that uh, is there, standalone um, for uh, uh, serving for solving certain problems, but we want to use technology so that we get additional benefits as humans that stay with us even when the technology goes away. So build technologies that intrinsically improve us as humans. And uh, if I got this uh, point across to some of you who are starting in this field and are excited about the technologies um, and uh, you like build a few systems that... Uh, uh, like uh, try to achieve this, then I have more than uh, uh, achieved what I wanted to do here today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.